Christmas in December, but to let it out. And by that, I don't mean start decorating even earlier in the year. I know some of you are snooty when it comes to your holidays, so anything Christmassy taking place before Thanksgiving is like a code violation. You know, it's offensive. Why can't they just let Thanksgiving be its own holiday? You know, my wife is like that. But here's what I mean. Christmas represents riveting theological realities that ought to floor you in amazement every day. What was accomplished by what we call Christmas is some of the most life-giving, category-shattering, future-transforming information that you will ever encounter. And I say that without exaggeration. And Mr. Phil read earlier, John 114, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That is the intended effect of the incarnation, beholding glory. So let me encourage you, don't pass by in the sentimentality of this season without beholding glory. There was something glorious available here. It is, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same face that belonged to a little baby in Bethlehem. And there are some things that we just need to take time and stare at. And that's what I hope we'll do this morning. I'm going to be presenting to you three truths from our passage that I'm sure almost none of you will be hearing for the first time. But they are deserving of our attention. And beholding glory takes longer than it does for your Twitter feed to refresh. But it's worth it. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. So many places we could look this morning, but we are going to read Luke 1, verse 26 through 38. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's just pray as we begin to receive from God's word. Holy Spirit, you are present in this text, working this miracle. And we ask that you would continue to do this morning what you love to do, which is shine the light brightly on Jesus Christ. Oh God, would we come away from today having seen him, and having seen him, love him all the more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we love birth announcements around here. We announce when babies are expected, when they are born, and the first Sunday they're attending here so that by the time they're dedicated, they're already celebrities. And Luke's gospel opens by considering the birth of two babies, and, and they are unique birth announcements. And by that, I don't mean that Luke bypasses the parents and goes straight to the grandparents like Pastor Peter would. But that in both of these situations, the angel Gabriel shows up to deliver the news. And that's because they are unique babies. And if you take the time to read through this chapter, you'll, you'll notice the striking similarities between the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. But there are also categorical differences that cause Jesus to stand out. And by the way, this, this passage is about Jesus. It's not about Mary. And I say that just because of the, the city that we live in and the religious climate that surrounds us. That This text has often been misunderstood. And Mary is greeted here as the favored one. And that's traditionally rendered from the Latin version as full of grace. But, but the word here means divine favor that is given to the undeserving. It's not a statement of Mary's elevation or intrinsic worth, but of the blessing that has come to her life through bearing the Savior. But at the same time, Luke does want us to notice Mary's humility and obedience here. Her willingness to serve God in sacrificial ways that teaches all of us how we should receive Jesus in our own lives. Well, since this is a birth announcement, I want to interact with this passage by asking the question, who is this baby of promise? Or to borrow from the Christmas carol, we just sang, what child is this? And it tells us so many things about him. But we'll focus on these three. He is God incarnate. He is the savior of his people. And he is king of an everlasting kingdom. So first, he is God incarnate. And what a paradoxical, seemingly contradictory, offensive, scandalous phrase that is. Which is why the initial responses here are confusion in verse 29, fear in verse 30, and puzzlement in verse 34. But this is, as the angel Gabriel says in verse 37, God doing the impossible. 
That's what Christmas is all about. It is the invasion of God into this world to do impossible things. But the specific marvel that captures Mary's attention here is that she will conceive and give birth to a son, even though she's a virgin. And Luke doesn't intend for us to take this in any other way than as a miracle that humbles our intellect. Notice what J.A. Packer says. He says, we know something of what happens in the womb when a pregnancy starts and as it develops. But when we try to imagine what was involved when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and the divine human fetus began to grow in her, we are out of our depth. The way of wisdom is that when rational analysis can take us no further, we turn to worship. And that is the appropriate response to this truth. A few years back, a book came out in which the author compared certain doctrines of the Christian faith to springs on a trampoline. And if you've ever owned a trampoline before, you know that after time, some of the springs begin to fly off, sometimes becoming projectiles at the children jumping. But that doesn't deter kids from still using the trampoline minus a few springs. And he raised the question, do we really need the spring of the virgin birth in order to jump on the trampoline of Christianity? You know, what, what do we lose if we lose the virgin birth? According to Luke, we lose Jesus. <laughs> and this doctrine is supposed to cast the spotlight on a deeper fact that this is no ordinary child. This is God's child. Specifically, this is the Son of God in human form. And there are some clues in this passage that are there to direct us toward this conclusion. The angel Gabriel is sent from God in verse 26. And he greets Mary by telling her that the Lord is with her in verse 28. Now that might not strike us as important, but up To this point in the book of Luke, the word Lord has referred to Yahweh. John the Baptist will prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming. And he's now here. He will be with Mary as Mary is with child. This is the Emmanuel principle. God himself is with us. And so Gabriel says about Jesus in verse 32... He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. What a statement that is. And then verse 35, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And son of God here is is a reference to the sonship of the Messiah that God promises in 2 Samuel 7 to his his covenant with David that there will always be a son on the throne. But that is gesturing in the direction of something even more profound. The child Jesus is divine in the fullest way possible. He is the son of God as the second person of the Trinity. And and this is witnessed in the rest of Scripture. Consider some of the statements that are made about him elsewhere in the New Testament. 
In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2, 9. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In Hebrews 1, 3. And there are eight specific places, at least eight specific places in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly referred to as God. Those references in your notes are worth memorizing. Jesus is fully God. He has a perfect and complete divine nature. And, mystery of mysteries, it is the same undivided divine nature that is shared by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Which means that he possesses all of the attributes of God without measure. Infinity. Eternality, self-sufficiency, holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, wisdom, omniscience, omnipotence, and, get this, omnipresence. You know, in one sense, when the Son of God came to earth, he never left heaven. Listen to how John Calvin says it. He says, for even if the word in his immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, to hang upon the cross. Yet he continually filled the earth, even as he had done from the beginning. Here's something that ought to create worship. The baby in the manger has a divine nature that cannot be contained by the universe. He upheld by the word of his power the molecules of the stable in which he was born. He supplied every breath to the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. To say that Jesus is God is to mean it in every significance possible. He is not God-light like God on a diet or something. No, he is God in the fullest sense. And yet, in him, the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. He was truly human. You know, in church history, one of the the first threats to a biblical doctrine of Christ was not a denial of his deity, but a questioning of his full humanity. It was, it was a group called the Docetists who said Jesus kind of floated off of the ground a little bit. He was, he was like a phantom. He just appeared to be human, but he wasn't really physical. They thought that would be, you know, that would be improper for him or something. But no, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was a real baby. You know, in the next chapter, when the angels visit the shepherds in the field, I love what they tell them in Luke 2, verse 12. This will be a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
Until we had our daughter Piper, I didn't realize how important swaddling was. But, but, but notice what they say. This will be the sign. God's sign for his people is a baby. This is the humor of God. This is the humility of God. He spent nine months in the womb. He passed through a birth canal. He soiled his own diapers. He got dirt under his fingernails. He felt the tingling sensation when your leg falls asleep from sitting on it. He sneezed. Perhaps he snorted water through his nose when he was laughing. I don't know. His nerve endings and pain receptors worked as designed. And the incarnation is not just that the, the Son of God put on some sort of human body jumpsuit. No, he was made like us in every way, excluding sin. He had a human soul, a human mind and intellect, real human emotions. He had a human will that needed to be brought into conformity to the divine will. He prays in the garden, not what I will, but your will be done. He felt Happiness and grief, friendship and betrayal, pleasure and pain. He was the son of man who came feasting and drinking and he was the man of sorrows. The full spectrum of our humanity and of our temptation was experienced by him. And he learned obedience through what he suffered. I want you to realize this. Jesus knows our humanity through and through. Nothing, nothing that you will encounter in this life is unfamiliar to him. For every person, an undesired singleness, Jesus was an unmarried man. For every person, Grieving loss, and I've been to plenty of funerals recently. Jesus wept outside of Lazarus' grave. For every person experiencing relational brokenness, perhaps made bitter by the holidays, Jesus was disbelieved by his brothers and considered insane by his family. And for every single one of us who have felt targeted in a moment of weakness, Jesus was sent hungry into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He knows us inside and out. There is no hiding away in your humanity from him. He has mercifully intruded every aspect of your existence. He has been there. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. Jesus is fully God and truly man, perfectly united in one person in a way that detracts from neither his divinity nor his humanity. He he was, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. And he was a real man. And get this. As a man, he was finite. Verse 
creaturely, dependent at every moment for God to sustain him. There were things that during his earthly life, his human mind did not know, such as the day or hour of his return. And if I could take us out of our debt for just a moment, there are aspects of his own divine nature that will forever remain a mystery to his limited human mental capacities. This is the incarnation. And it's glorious. Do you see it? Jesus has his humanity permanently. Today he is risen and exalted, but no less human. There is a man in heaven. And one day we will see him. I want you to feel this. Because of the incarnation, our experience in heaven will will not only be staring into the brightness of the glory of God, but speaking face to face with the man Christ Jesus like you would talk to a friend. We will walk with him in the cool of the evening like Adam in the garden. We will hear his voice in our ears. Perhaps like the Apostle John Rest our head on his shoulder. Transcendent God made tangible for us. If you are a Christian, you will really see Jesus. That's the beauty of Christmas. And the reason this will be our story is because he is the savior of his people. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the name Jesus means Savior, or the Lord saves. And when Gabriel visits Joseph in Matthew's account, he supplies the rationale for Jesus' name. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's what he's come to do. It's the purpose of his birth. This is a rescue mission. But notice, what we need to be saved from is sin. Jesus didn't come just to rescue us from negative thoughts. Or a vague sense of hopelessness or societal problems out there that we're not responsible from. No, he came to save us from sin. And here's something that should humble us Christmas is necessary because of your sin and mine. And that can be easily lost. Amidst Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman. But Christmas is not supposed to give us warm, fuzzy feelings about ourselves. It is a statement that we are wrong. Cosmically wrong. And we need to be fixed. So Tim Keller says, The world embraces Christmas in a way it has never embraced Good Friday and Easter. I think the world sees Christmas as being rather affirming. It's all about peace and goodwill. Isn't that nice? Actually, the message of Christmas is incredibly confrontational. It says the reason for Christmas is that the world's wisdom has failed. 
And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a culture that has no tolerance for the supposed intolerance of calling sin what God has said to be sin. Well, welcome to step one on missing out of the joy of Christmas. If there's nothing that we need to be saved from, then we don't need a savior. Which means we don't need the baby born in Bethlehem. Which is why these events seem essentially irrelevant to millions of people. But the truth is, we are sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are fallen. We are in rebellion. We are proud and selfish and opposing to God. We've got issues. We have shackled ourselves to the weight of our idols. And like Jonah, cast ourselves overboard into the sea. We need to be rescued. And a deliverer, a savior has come. He was born, and with him, mercy entered the world. Forgiveness is available. Freedom is here. Do you know it? And since the Savior has come, we can, we can cease self-salvation in its various forms. Whatever that is. Whether that's religious tradition or self-pity, or people-pleasing, whatever it is that you do to make yourself feel better about the things that you failed to do, turn from those things and embrace what Jesus has done. Run to Him again and again. But what's not yet specified in these birth narratives is how it is that Jesus will save us from sin. But you know, there's, there's a statement that Simeon makes to Mary in the next chapter that seems out of place. It's, it's not the kind of encouragement that you want to hear when you've just had a baby. But look at what he says. Luke 2 verse 34. Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword would pierce through Mary's soul as she'd watch nails pierce through the hands and feet of her own son. And a spear pierce through his Side. The manger cast a shadow in the form of cross. There's a song that says, Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. You see, that's why the word became flesh. He was given flesh so that he could suffer for sin. He was given a body that could be broken. Notice how the author of Hebrews describes this chapter 2. 
verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he might taste death for everyone. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why do you do that? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He partook of flesh and blood so that he could die. And by doing so, put death to death. He shared in our humanity so that it could be a crucified humanity. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 3, that by sending his son, the likeness of sinful flesh, God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Our sin. Whose flesh? Not ours. Christ's flesh. God has condemned sin incarnate. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a savior. There is good news proclaimed to you this Christmas. And it's the same glad tidings of great joy that is available to you every day of your calendar. But you know what receives the emphasis in this passage, it's not primarily that Jesus is the God-man or that he is our Savior, but that he is king. There, there is a regal accent to this text. Look at verse 32. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And this is foreshadowed at the beginning of the story where Gabriel shows up to someone who is betrothed to a man who is of the house of David. And here Gabriel says, Jesus won't only have David's lineage, but that he will sit on David's throne. Which means he is the king of promise. He's the high king that Israel has been anticipating. You know, I haven't seen the second Hobbit film yet. I heard it was a disappointment to the book loyalists, although I'll take any excuse I can to spend more time in Middle Earth. But... What Tolkien helps us to see in the character of Thorin in The Hobbit and especially Aragon in The Lord of the Rings is that there is in the heart of every person a desire for a good king. We want to be ruled. We desire a King Arthur or a Richard the Lionhearted. God has made us this way, which is why we love the stories. I know we, we lose sight of that in our current American climate. You know, we, we get easily fed up with a president who's been elected through a democratic process. We'd have no patience for a king. But contrary to how we sometimes feel, government is a good thing. It is a good and necessary thing in this fallen world, even though sometimes it fails us. 
But our political frustrations point not to the need for the elimination of government, but for a better government. And I'm sorry, but it won't be coming in the next election cycle. We need a perfect ruler. And Jesus fully answers the desire for a righteous king. That longing found in children's stories and whispered from the lips of Israel's prophets and inscribed on the heart of every person made in the image of God. And Gabriel says he will reign forever. It is an unending kingdom. It is universal. It has no parameters or restrictions. As we heard last week from Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. There is no limit to the kingship of Jesus. He is not a parochial deity. He is Lord over every land and every aspect of our lives. He is, according to Revelation 1.5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He lays claim to every district, over every throne, and in every session of Congress. Which is why, as Douglas Wilson says, the message of Christmas is politically incendiary. You know, Herod interpreted the significance of the arrival of this baby accurately. Although he misunderstood the timing of things. He saw Christmas as an insurrection. So he responded with violence. You see, the kingship of Jesus means that we don't get to be in control. And Herod understood this. It means we don't call the shots. And this is incredibly offensive to our culture that celebrates self-determination and self-rule. As believers... We get to proclaim the detested message that there is someone who has authority over your life. He gets to say what you may and may not do. He can command certain things. And place other things off limits. And this idea is increasingly foreign to the world around us. It's like you're speaking another language when you talk this way. The birth of Jesus doesn't just represent some nice ideas for religious people to talk about with their families around the Christmas ham. It gets in your face and it makes a universal claim. Jesus reigns. A few years ago, an atheist named Christopher Hitchens, he passed away in 2011 He's no longer an atheist, by the way. I say that soberly, too. But, but he wrote an article for Slate titled, Tis the Season to be Incredulous. And he complained that around Christmas time, a, a secular society begins to publicly celebrate themes that are inescapably religious. Now, he's got a point. 
but it's on an arrow facing in the wrong direction. <laughs> the problem is that this only happens in December. But he concludes by making this appeal. He says, you know, if we can't help ourselves, could we at least hold our ceremonies in private? And a pastor named Douglas Wilson, who spent some time uh, touring around and, and debating Hitchens, he responded in this way. He says this. Now, I fully understand the request. Can you not arrange to take your faith indoors and make it a private matter? Keep it away from the rest of us? And here's the answer. No. The star appeared in the sky to announce the birth of one who would hold a universal scepter. And such scepters are not held privately or stored in closets. The angels appeared to the shepherds to announce peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and our sorry world scream in need for peace is a very public matter indeed. Jesus really is Lord. And whatever else that claim is, it is no private matter. It is either true or false. Being true as it is, we sing about it in the public square. Why? Because he's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where does Christmas belong? Wherever the curse is. And it seems to me this means we should start with the public square. Jesus has a public reign. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And this should give us hope. There is no legitimate threat to the rulership of Jesus Christ. Not in politics. Not in the global system. Not in your spouse or your children or your difficult family members. You'll be gathering around this Christmas. His authority is uncontested. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. They cannot help but do so. You know the Senate recently voted to eliminate the filibuster as a way of blocking presidential court nominations. I think that was unwise, just given the fallen world that we live in. But no one will be able to filibuster Jesus' appointment as king. No one can block it from going through. He reigns. And this should encourage us. It should also stir us toward faithful witness. Christians should not be ashamed to proclaim the kingship of Jesus in every setting of life. And to do so with Christmas cheer. Don't be grumpy people. Even if Phil Robertson isn't on Duck Dynasty anymore. Let us out rejoice the world that opposes us. Moving forward in faith, knowing that our King has already won our cause. And we raise a banner to His name. Let's enter the new year with affection and hope and gladness because Jesus reigns. This is the story and the glory of Christmas. It represents the most significant news you will ever hear. We've been given someone more precious
more beautiful, more astounding than anyone or anything you will encounter in this world. You believe that? He's the God-man. He's the Savior. He's King. Do you love Him? Do you trust in Him? Do you give your life to Him? There's no one like Him. So let's stand together and worship Him. When love came down to earth And made his home with men The hopeless found a hope The sinner found a friend Not to the powerful But to the poor he came And humble, hungry hearts Were satisfied again What joy, what peace has come to us? What hope, what help, what love? When every ugly thought Simple deed was scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet. The innocent is cursed, the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. What joy! What joy!
this word we heard this morning, God, just reminded of how quickly I can pass by this season and not remember the the hope that's in this baby's name. God, the joy that you expect us to live in because this baby came and was man for us take on flesh and die in our place, Lord, so that we would never know how much it cost. Lord, would this Christmas be, be a time where we, we stand before our King, worshiping Him, adoring Him, with fresh love, fresh adoration, fresh appreciation for all you've done 
and all this baby Jesus' name means for us. What love, what joy, what peace has come to us. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for our time together. It's in this baby Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a blessed day.